If you're a fan of this show and you'd like a chance to steer the ship, that opportunity is available to you. We're already planning our season two of Grimdark History. And if you'd like to have a say in what we tackle on season two, you can do that by heading over to our channel on youtube.com at grimdarkhistory slash community. You'll find a post there with an active poll asking what your thoughts are and what the second season of Grimdark History should be. So head on over and have a vote. Thank you very much and enjoy the show. Messengers and merchants no longer traveled the highways or rivers. The Gushans drove herds of goats and cattle and their shepherds from the lands. Prisoners roamed the cities and brigands terrorized the highways. The great city gates of this land lay destroyed and covered with mud, and all the foreign lands uttered bitter cries from the walls of their cities. As if it was the time before cities were built and founded, the fields yielded no grain. The rivers yielded no fish, and the orchards yielded no syrup or wine. Clouds thick with rain would not fall, and the bagurum plant would not grow. In those days, oil for one shekel was barely half a liter, grain for one shekel was only half a bushel, wool for one shekel was only a mina, fish for one shekel filled only one band measure, and was sold at such prices in the markets of the cities. Such was the starvation that those who died in the streets in their homes and on roofs where they lay remained unburied. People were flailing at themselves from hunger. Packs of dogs roamed the silent streets and would devour any man who walked by. Riots and murder reigned with starvation. Honest people became traitors. Friends became enemies. Heroes lay dead on top of heroes. And the blood of traitors ran upon the blood of honest men. What you just heard was the, uh, or an excerpt from the Curse of Akkad. This is a uh, poem or a uh, historiography, uh, which is just kind of a exaggerated, imagined history, partly based on fact, partly based on, um, you know, don't let the facts get in the way of a good tale. Uh, this is a history of the later Babylonians uh, trying to put together uh, what possibly could have caused the uh, destruction of their earlier civilization a few hundred years ago uh, by the Gushans, who were uh, some tribal nomads uh, from the mountain areas uh, from uh, the borders of the Mesopotamia region, uh, and they uh, invaded and uh, destroyed the main city there. Now, what's interesting about the curse of Akkad is that it's the description of a famine. It's a description of a drought. It's a description of the impacts both of those have on the people that live in that area. And it also describes inflation as a result of that too, which I think is kind of fascinating uh, about that. Never mind the being invaded, um, you know, that's happening really all the time. Uh, but what's interesting here is the people starving, uh, starving so much they're turning on each other, friends become enemies, heroes lay on top of heroes, honest people become traitors. These are people turning on each other for food, for money, for anything. The drought is real. There's 
um, no rain falling in the area plants aren't growing grains aren't growing the city is becoming depopulated the walls of the city's been destroyed there's no uh, animals for the shepherds the rivers are empty of food and their orchards won't grow any berries and all of this lack of food is causing real impacts uh, which is really interesting you know the the inflation they talk about is you know oil you can barely get half a liter and I say half a liter uh, they're using uh, obviously different weights and measures in uh, 2000 uh, BCE that's roughly the time period we're talking about here but I'm roughly converting that based on the work other real scholars have done to let us know you know a dram roughly equals whatever we're uh, it's not quite half a liter it's actually a little under that more like 400 uh, and some milliliters but the famine the famine's really terrifying because we see famine over and over and over again all through our own history and we know what real famine does to people during uh, the post World War one uh, era period the post World War one era uh, period of the USSR modern-day uh, actually modern-day Ukraine not modern-day Russia as much as Russia would like to object to that um, but in the late 1930s or sorry in the early 1930s uh, there was a, a widespread famine in Ukraine and actually all over parts of Russia but Ukraine was probably the uh, largest recipient of the results of that famine and um, we have modern day records of what happened to people uh, during that famine and much the same now there's uh, a lot more happening you can imagine than people just turning on people that happened a lot but we have uh, you know letters from different people in Ukraine writing to each other and I'm gonna read you uh, a quote here from a letter uh, a woman wrote to a friend of hers in June 1933 she's saying that she had not yet become a cannibal but was and I quote not sure that I shall not be one by the time this letter reaches you good people die first those who refuse to steal or to prostitute themselves died those who gave food to others died those who refused to eat corpses died those who refused to kill their fellow man died parents who resisted cannibalism died before their children did there is um, a lot more of this and worse and um, this isn't an episode on uh, famine it's not an episode on the uh, Holodomor uh, Ukrainian famine uh, we're talking about the Bronze Age in general but I wanted to point out um, a little bit of the reality of what that curse of Akkad is talking about uh, and when I say uh, Akkad, we're talking about Babylon. This is uh, uh, the, uh, in my first series when we were talking about Copper Age, 
uh, 40K and the world of Copper Age. We touched on uh, early Mesopotamia uh, cities. We called it the Uruk period or the Uruk expansion. Uh, and that was really uh, the, the first city-states becoming militaristic and dominating each other. Uh, well, the period that follows that that is the rise of the Akkadian Empire or Akkadian Empire and the first uh, king of Akkad uh, he builds that empire and it's as far as we know one of the first stable empires in civilization and his grandson of this first king is uh, a king by the name of Naram Sin and the curse of Akkad is uh, really uh, the story of Naram Sin and the world he inherited and how he used the struggles in his time and place uh, from there the invasions from the uh, Gushin nomads uh, that kind of uh, caused heck all through the end of that Uruk period uh, and um, caused heck uh, for his father Naram Sin took the advice of future politicians to never let a good crisis go to waste and he used the uh, famine and uncertainty of the period and the weaknesses of the other city-states and rivals in that period to consolidate his power, uh, the power of the empire of Akkad. And uh, at, by the end of Naram Sin's rule, the Akkadian empire is as large as it's ever going to be. Now we're going to dig in deeper to that a little later on in this uh, Bronze Age series. We're going to do an episode specifically on Babylon, and we can't really talk about Babylon without touching on uh, Naram Singh and his grandfather who really built the empire that Babylon inherits that we're going to be talking about. Uh, but I did want to touch on this uh, as we look at the larger world in general of the Bronze Age. Now the focus of this episode is the Bronze Age in general. We're going to touch on major parts of the world just to talk about what's happening, how things are connected or how things are not connected to help put some context together for what's going to be our next episode, which is going to be focused on uh, the Aegean and the Minoans and that civilization. Uh, but right now we're just going to talk about what's happening uh, elsewhere in the world. You know, in our Copper Age series, we, we started in high orbit looking down at the planet and we we started zooming in towards our focus which was Anatolia in the Copper Age and as we zoomed in we talked a little bit more detail about different areas and how they're connected we're gonna do the same thing here we're gonna start way out in orbit looking at Earth in general and then we're gonna start zooming in to the uh, Bronze Age Aegean Sea and specifically to the Minoan civilization that uh, exists primarily on the island of Crete. So before we get into the Mediterranean, uh, I thought we'd start uh, around Northern Europe and that area. So England is its own island now. It has been for several thousand years. And uh, there are people there in England, in Ireland, in Wales, in Scotland, even today. And uh, now these are not the Celtic peoples. And there's various Celtic tribes. Those people have not spread into England or even into, uh, into Northern Europe yet. They've yet to really arrive on the scene in any dominating force. But the pre-Celtic peoples uh, that are there, 
those are the people that built Stonehenge. <laughs> they're they're not druids. Uh, not, not that we have any record of. Uh, they're not Celtic people. They don't speak the Celtic language, and they don't speak any version of the Celtic language. Um, but they are great artisans. Um, they do amazing um, metal smithing work, uh, specifically with gold. The uh, British Museum actually has um, in record there, and you can go online and find it. I'll, I'll uh, link, see if I can link to that uh, later on. Uh, but they have an amazing, uh, what is effectively a gold cape. Um, it's extremely thinly drawn out gold that would sit on top of maybe a, a chieftain or a priest or a priestess, a religious leader, uh, and it's finely hammered out, finely drawn out. It's super thin gold, uh, and it's meticulously worked and extremely intricate. It's a, a level of artistry that um, really, uh, it, it's just amazing for the period of time that it is. Now, it's interesting about the people that are living there right now. Some of them, of course, um, arrived and were living in England before Doggerland was inundated and before the North Sea came a thing. They're just people there. Uh, the, the Anatolian farmers uh, or the Stone Age hunter-gatherers, uh, they've kind of populated all, all around Europe, and they're all over this area at this time. Uh, and But the people that have come over since the North Sea has formed, they've built serious boats. Uh, they actually, at this time, and, and I say they, really the world in general at this time has uh, practically mastered short-range navigation and the rigging, the sailing, and the boat building techniques needed to do large-scale transportation of resources. You know, when, it, when we say some people got on a boat in northern Flanders or in Normandy, and uh, got across the the North Sea, the English Channel, and landed in southern England. You might think of a smallish um, canoe, maybe a Viking-sized um, short, small longship. No, the, these people are building pretty incredible boats, and I'll I'll talk about that in more detail when we get into the descriptions of the Bronze Age. Uh, but these boats are big enough to transport live animals and entire families. So herds of cattle, goats, pigs, um, they're not necessarily native to England. They're brought over at this time by these pre-Celtic peoples. So uh, you can imagine the size of boat you would need to bring over cattle other animals live as well as your family unit you know your your tribe go over as a community and they're landing in Cornwall and in the southeast area of England uh, so it's kind of nearish where London is but you know London's a little more north than this and they're starting to deforest uh, those areas of England and make room for farming and grazing for animals. So England is starting to become uh, less uh, kind of uh, hunter-gatherer type people and more subtle farming communities. And those people are building Stonehenge. They're mining tin in Cornwall and in Wales and that tin is being transported all the way down into the Aegean uh, all along the uh, Atlantic coast where uh, modern-day France, Spain, Portugal is, North Africa, uh, past uh, uh, Syracuse, uh, Sicily, those areas into the Aegean and into the Levant and Near East. So 
uh, you know, when I talked in the Copper Age, how the world was uh, more connected, uh, it's even more connected now uh, because boating and uh, navigation, near shore navigation, is about at its peak right now as it's going to be for quite some time. And uh, Europe in general is dominated by little regional centers of metal production. You can think of bronze at this time as the gasoline and diesel fuel of the world at this time. You know, we need uh, gas and oil as much as we would like to not need it right now, but we need it right now anyways, um, and have needed it in the recent past in order to run our civilizations. Bronze is doing that in the Bronze Age. And when I'm talking about the Bronze Age, I'm talking about, uh, you know, 2300-ish BCE um, into uh, late um, 1000 BCE, right around where the Iron Age starts. So we've got a, a, about a 1,500-year period, give or take a few hundred years on either side, depending on what region of the world you're on that we're talking about. So we can't go into a lot of details in, in all these areas because, you know, civilizations will rise and fall in a few hundred years. But I do want to talk in general about the connectedness of the world. So we touched on uh, England and how tin mines from there is making its way uh, along the Atlantic coast. So northern France uh, down along the, the Atlantic coast of France through uh, or past Spain and Portugal into the Mediterranean passing through uh, Corsica, Syracuse, uh, you know, uh, the, the coastal areas of Italy, and down into the Aegean. And we, we know the trade is happening, A, because we can do metallurgical analysis of the tin and bronze that we're uh, finding, and you can actually determine what area of the world it came from which is kind of neat. Tin isn't just tin. You can identify where in the world a chunk of tin or a chunk of bronze came from its component parts. So around uh, Europe, around this trading route along the um, coastlines of France, Spain, Portugal, southern France, uh, coastal uh, Italy, North Africa, and Egypt. It's dominated by these centers of industrial metal production. You know, when we can think about major oil producing nations, instead, it's major metal producing um, regions. And there's, mar you know, United Maritime Exchange from Sweden, Denmark, and England all the way down into the Mediterranean. And we know that because we find, um, A, common, commonly designed uh, metallic components. Um, so swords uh, that have a North European design will wind up in in uh, in the Levant area uh, that tells us uh, and not just one or two we find a lot and, and vice versa happens tells us that there's trade happening goods are moving back and forth uh, across the entirety of Europe we've got a, a wonderfully connected world today and when I say today we're talking 2500 1800 BCE that that time Another uh, neat thing that you can find around these um, centers of metal production that are along the maritime coastline uh, is uh, these things. They're called a chevaux de frise. Um, when I say that, um, it's, anti, it's an anti-cavalry fortification. Uh, and uh, to think about that, um, you may have seen pictures, you know, if you saw the you know, pictures of the Normandy beach landing or um, uh, what you might think of as an anti-tank uh, obstacle. It is a basically pieces of wood um, put together in a large X shape 
basically you have a man-sized X of sharpened wood spikes and those will be uh, fastened to a long post maybe five six feet long and those will be set up all over the area uh, around these fortified uh, cities and the this is uh, an anti-cavalry fortification because uh, cavalry is now a big thing to worry about and where these are settles settlements of centralized metal production there's a lot of wealth concentrated in these areas raiding and warfare is a big concern and specifically cavalry is a big concern so we have these large sharpened x-shaped posts you can think of it as the um, uh, bronze age equivalent of an anti-tank fortification so if you get uh, a band of a hundred strong uh, cavalry raiders they cannot attack your uh, your settlement without getting off their horses and walking them around the maze-like fortifications and that gives your archers plenty of time to pick them off from your battlements before they get anywhere near your city if you want to attack a city you got to do it on foot or you got to be a bit more methodical and you got to destroy all these things at a time so uh, and that's all across uh, Europe Spain Portugal uh, North Africa so it shows that there's a common sharing of ideas and technology a common concern about common warfare um, technologies and how you defend against them also um, you know when we were talking about the copper age and I told you my story of Otzi who was a copper age person who lived in the Italian Alps we talked about his bronze axe and how that was unique and how it looked how it felt it was kind of small didn't really look like what you think an axe looked like but now in the bronze age axes really look like what you would think a modern-day battle axe would look like halberds are, are a thing now not just spears the technology of basically long-range defensive warfare is evolved enough that people are realizing halberds are more useful than a spear so this is a little bit uh, about northern Europe about how trade is moving back and forth into the Aegean area and the people that are living in England and I'm going to talk a little bit about some of the other major civilizations happening in the world uh, before we start zooming in a little bit uh, into the Aegean area now in the Americas at this time uh, most of it is what we would call hunter-gatherer civilization still uh, most of uh, North and uh, Central uh, America and most of Southern America and most of the Caribbean is populated at this time uh, they're just hunter-gatherer people now a lot a huge chunk of Mexico and uh, northern South America uh, the, those people are starting to settle and become competent farmers and as I talked about in the in my copper age series a few of them are starting to form city-states well at this time we're, we're a few hundred years later now and the Olmec civilization in Central America is a dominant power they are a major uh, regional power they're really as far as we know one of the few civilizations in the Americas at that time one of the first ones to form uh, enough complex uh, society to have long-range governance uh, and administrative authority over huge swaths of land in uh, Africa we can kind of uh, divide that up into a few different uh, areas 
Now, I talked about the Sahara and the Copper Age was just coming to the end of its wet period, its humid period. So the Sahara Desert uh, was a savanna uh, just uh, basically a thousand years earlier than the time period I'm talking about. It's still uh, halfway between desert and savanna now. Uh, it's mostly desert but there are still a lot of pastoral nomads uh, leaving uh, out tribal life in this area it's getting harder and harder for them to exist uh, but they're adapting more and more to desert life south of the Sahara um, there's a band of farming civilizations uh, this would be uh, really the central, really across the entirety of Central Africa, where there's a, a large tropical uh, zone. There's a lot of farming civilizations there. And in Southern Africa and Madagascar, those areas, uh, that would be where we would have some more hunter-gatherer societies. There might be some farming civilizations there, uh, but we don't know about that yet. Wouldn't surprise me if there was, to be honest. In North Africa, uh, there's a lot of farming communities um, all along most of North more pardon me, most of North Africa. And they're all doing trade with each other. Uh, now, Egypt, has, as a kingdom, has been around for a few hundred years at this time. Um, we're well into uh, Egyptian pharaohs and pyramids and the religion and culture of that area. A lot of us are very familiar with it. Now, Egypt is often... Um, divided into southern and northern Egypt. There's a kingdom uh, just south of Egypt at this time called Kush. Kush and Egypt are uh, more or less in uh, constant warfare with each other every few hundred years. Uh, Kush is pushing into Egypt. Egypt is pushing into Kush. One of them's taking over the kingdoms of the other. Uh, now there's peace obviously large periods of peace from one end or the other uh, but these are two rival kingdoms and civilizations of uh, complex administrative uh, groups and advanced warfare between the two of them now when we talked about An anatolia in the copper age we talked about uh, the god emperor of mankind and his people being the proto-hittite people well, we are now in the timeline of actual Hittite people. And they are a dominant empire and kingdom of Anatolia at this time. They control a large swaths of Anatolia. Now, a fun little fact to talk about, um, you know, when we think about the Bible and the Hebrew states, Hebrew kingdoms, um, one of the things that's usually on people's minds in the background is the Queen of Sheba. Sheba, it's a kingdom that exists at this time. Uh, now, uh, a lot of people, you know, if, if fallen back, uh, you know, when you think in the, you know, the 1970s, 60s, 80s, even into the 90s, uh, a lot of people, uh, if they believed that Sheba as a kingdom existed, they thought it was in Africa. It's not. It's actually in southern, uh, the southern Arabian Peninsula. And it's um, specifically located, if, if you can think about uh, Africa, and the Arabian Peninsula and kind of where, where the uh, African and Arabian Peninsulas almost touch. There's an area there called the Gulf of Aden uh, and then it becomes the Red Sea and the Red Sea borders Egypt um, and Kush at this time. Well, uh, on the other side of the Red Sea is, is the Arabian Peninsula, and at the southern end of the Arabian Peninsula is Yemen. Well, that little tip of Yemen, the part that's closest to Africa, 
that is where we believe uh, the kingdom of Sheba was. Now I'm going to skip over the Levant uh, period area right now because we'll get into that a little deeper when we start talking about the Minoans. Uh, but if we skip past the Levant and Near East area and we move on into the steppes area between Europe and Asia, uh, the Sumerian culture is coming to be a dominant force at this time. Now, there's lots of other civilizations. You know, it's a huge uh, period of time. We're talking about civilizations rise and fall. Different ones dominate different regions. Uh, but Sumerians, you know, think of Conan the Sumerian. Um, that was partly based on the Sumerians, C-I-M-M-E-R. Um, those people were a uh, nomadic um, horse horsemen. Uh, and they were uh, dominating warriors at the time. Um, civilizations were always worried about them coming in and raiding. And well, we can talk about that a little later when we talk about the Babylonian period because they had to deal and worry about them. Uh, but past them, when we get into uh, North India, there is a, a very advanced civilization in there at this time. There's probably lots more, but this is what we know so far uh, there's a civilization called the Indus Valley Civilization and they traded um, heavily with the Assyrians and the Babylonians goods were flowing back and forth between uh, Indus Valley Civilization and the people of the Near East and Mediterranean all the time Moving into uh, Asia and that area now, uh, of course, uh, Australia and um, yeah, you know the Polynesian Islands and uh, those South China Sea Islands. Those areas are all populated at this time. Uh, but Korea and the air and the area of Korea um, I, I may not may I'm probably going to butcher the name, um, but I believe it is called. Um, Ko uh, Daozan is the name of the kingdom. Um, it might be called Joseon if we're um, um, maybe more English-speaking people. Uh, this is one of the first kingdoms uh, in uh, the Korean area that forms at that time. In uh, China, just north of Korea, one of the first Chinese kingdoms is forming. Uh, it's called the Shang Dynasty, uh, also known as the Yin Dynasty. They didn't rule really all of China. They ruled a, a strip of China, uh, which is called the Yellow River Valley. Um, so still a significant chunk of China, but mostly along uh, the valley and surrounding lands uh, that follow the Yellow River um, from the, the ocean as it goes into the desert. Northern Siberia, well, most of Siberia is all hunter-gatherer civilizations at this time um, and uh, tribal nomads. So a quick snapshot of uh, what's happening in the different parts of the world at large. There is trade moving around all the world at this time, even between these tribal nomadic civilizations and settled civilizations. Uh, now, that trade sometimes devolves into warfare, especially between settled and tribal civilizations. Uh, the tribal civilizations tend to find settled civilizations pretty easy to pick off. You always know where they are, and they suck at stopping nomadic horse archers. Well, we could probably spend a whole episode talking about the nomadic horse archer as a weapon system and technology, because it's one that really has, has, doesn't get defeated for several thousand years. Not really till the invention of uh, modern gunpowder does a nomadic horse archer uh, finally become an inferior weapon. Now, I touched a little bit about the uh, nomadic horse archer as an, uh, a dominant weapon system. 
but for most of the uh, rest of the world, chariots are the dominant method to use cavalry. Chariots and spear throwing from chariots or archers uh, mounted on chariots where you'd have a one person driving the chariot and a second person, maybe two people on either side of the, the chariot uh, firing arrows. Archery is a big part of warfare now. Slings are still uh, a very valid uh, weapon system option to use in battle. Remember I talked about in the Copper Age, when you want to get industrial with your warfare, it takes a lot of work to make uh, a thousand arrows. It doesn't take a lot of work at all to make a thousand clay sings, pardon me, clay sling stones. Say that five times fast. Uh, but archery um, and chariot-mounted archery and throwing spears or javelins, uh, these are dominant um, methods of ranged warfare. Phalanxes, large groups of people lined up with shields and spears or halberds. And the Egyptians are one of the few groups in this area at this time uh, that are uh, dominantly uh, using the chariot system as a method to dominate their enemies. Uh, not only are they experts at it, uh, the landscape in and around Egypt and the kingdoms and regions that it lands that it dominates are advantageous for open warfare with chariots. Now in most of Europe, uh, there's uh, tribal societies and uh, they're settled tribes. They have of communities, villages that talk and work and trade goods with each other. Uh, they're generally rude, ruled by chiefs. As we move down into uh, North Africa and uh, Anatolia and the Mideast area, uh, those people have advanced beyond uh, little tribal communities. There's some of them out there, but uh, really they're dominated uh, by the large-scale farming that is happening, uh, the ability to uh, produce a lot of excess food for excess population, and have um, standing armies and be able to train people in these advanced weapon systems and they militarily dominate their their neighbors well these people are forming the first kingdoms now at the start i was talking about uh, naram sin uh, who is uh, the uh, great-grandson of the founder of the Akkadian Empire. Well, naram sin is the first person in history to call himself a god king Religion is a huge part of the Akkadian uh, civilization uh, and their population. Uh, religion's a tool for dominating uh, your, your populace uh, as well as the threat of violence against the people or the threat of withholding uh, food and goods and protection in your lands. Uh, you can also religiously threaten the people with the destruction of their soul, the wrath of the gods. Uh, there's a, a mystical magic associated with the rulers in that area. Egypt is uh, coming along the same way. Religion is a huge part of helping to organize and run an orderly civilization across a large swath of land that you can't just send an email or pick up a phone and call somebody to. We have set rules that we know everybody's going to follow. And uh, in order to enable uh, that type of organization, aside from religion and a leadership and um, kind of carrot and stick uh, protection, food, or I'm going to murder you or enslave you or imprison you, uh, there's also writing is a huge part of helping to make sure these civilizations run along in an orderly fashion. 
So uh, writing is a huge part of these civilizations. And it's one of the reasons why we have a lot of detail about some of these other ones and not so much about some of those other tribal civilizations in other parts of the world. Um, they're not writing things down that we found or have been able to decipher. So the best we can tell is what we can tell from bones uh, and uh, bits of uh things that have not been broken down or not biodegradable. Now I talked a little bit about uh, trade and how goods are flowing back and forth and uh, the level and quality of knowledge of working uh, jewelry and metals that exists at this time. I touched on uh, that that kind of golden cape that I told you about earlier. Uh, well, that thing uh, was found in a grave in northern Wales, and uh, it's inadequate for me to describe it to you. Um, you can only really look at it, and uh, if you're anywhere near a, a computer or not, make a note of this, but if you can, uh, look up the uh, mold North Wales Golden Cape. And when I say mold, M-O-L-D. Uh, but I'll try and describe it. I'm going to fail miserably. Uh, but if you can imagine a, a shawl of cloth that sits on your shoulders, it, it kind of wraps around the front and top of your chest and about the same down to your shoulder blades on your back. If you can imagine cloth, layers of cloth hanging around you like that. So you might have, uh, you know, there might be about 12 inches or so of, of length of cloth uh, wrapped around you, sitting thinly and lightly on your shoulders, covering your front and back chest and shoulder blades. Uh, that's the size and amount of gold that we're talking about in this cape. And if you can imagine that cloth having uh, dozens of intricate lines of beads on the entirety of its surface. Some of the beads uh, might be tiny, tiny little beads. Some of them might be a little bigger. So we have uh, variations in the size of the beads, uh, but it's all moving, wrapped around, flowing with the cloth. Uh, there's very little of cloth that you see. It's just the beads. Well, imagine a sheet of gold sitting on you like that. And instead of beads being built in the metal, the metal itself has been uh, raised up and beaten and shaped into shapes of beads. That is the intricate, detailed uh, skill of metalworking that exists in even a tribal civilization at this time. And, you know, we know they build Stonehenge, those same people. Uh, as amazing feat of engineering that Stonehenge is, it looks like rough stones, even though it's uh, amazingly wrought in terms of its uh, organization and planning uh, and stuff. But the stonework itself looks kind of rough. Um, but the this golden shawl that I'm talking about looks like something that even the best metal workers today would struggle to make. That's the level of craftsmanship that exists back then. Now, gold is a fundamental form of currency. Uh, but another major form of currency is actually the constituent parts of bronze. Tin and iron are heavily traded, and they're usually traded in the exact ratios you would need to make strong bronze. It's not a 50-50 mix to make bronze. Um, you take mostly copper, add a little bit of tin, maybe a little bit of other parts to kind of get different strengths of copper. Um, but boats and carts are moving around all of Europe into North Africa, uh, into Levant, East Asia, Indus Valley civilizations, uh, into the Sumerian and steppe people civilizations, through Korea, China, Japan, through Siberia, all over 
you know, the entirety of Europe, Asia, and North Africa is this trade and pump moving copper and tin around and getting it to these centralized locations that produce bronze. And then bronze is being uh, shipped out to other areas, which is then being uh, smithed into whatever is needed, tools, weapons, armor, much like shipping in raw crude oil and natural gas uh, into an oil refinery now, they're shipping in raw crude copper and tin, producing bronze ingots and shipping that out. So people will be walking around even with uh, circlets. You know, when you think of a bracelet on your on your arm, uh, that type of size and shape of copper and tin and sometimes bronze. And they'll pull that off their arm and trade it for whatever's needed. Now, when we're getting industrial, if we're a mercantile society, as the Minoans are, that I'll be talking about. Uh, they trade in uh, bronze and copper in a lot more mass size quantities. Uh, and I'll dig about that uh, when we talk about the Minoans. Uh, but there's a lot of trade happening. Uh, naval technology is an, such that we can build boats that can t carry tons and tons of material of this quality um, all across Europe through the Mediterranean, trading back and forth and returning goods. Um, so there's a, a huge connectedness of society uh, and bronze and the materials that make bronze are one of the main pumps that enable these societies to exist. Now, in addition to gold, glass is a known technology at this time. Uh, we're not making glass windows or magnifying glasses or or reading glasses, uh, but the technology exists to make uh, the type of colored glass that would be used in jewelry. You make the right color of glass, you can uh, have a cheaper version of something that looks like amber or other colored precious gemstones at that time. Uh, and that's worked into a lot of jewelry in the area in the in this time. Clothing varies widely depending on where you are in the world. If you're in the uh, Aegean area, it's nice warm Mediterranean climate. Um, men wear basically loincloths or kilt type materials. Uh, in Egypt, linen has been in use for a long time, and linen material is traded widely across uh, the Mediterranean and Near East area. Furs and leather heavily traded, as is wool. So there's a lot of variety in clothing. Dyed clothing is uh, uh, in existence at this time, too. So we get a little bit of idea of of kind of the the pump and scale and scope of materials and goods and connectedness of civilizations around Europe and uh, North Africa and the Mideast at this time. But I think it would help be helpful to think about it or to provide a little context on it to help put it in a bit of a modern day perspective. So I yeah, talked a little bit at the start about our our golden cape from our, our northern Wales uh, tribal society. We don't know much about them. Uh, they didn't have any writing, uh, but we know that they were amazingly skilled craftsmen. Uh, now we can think maybe to put it in some modern day context. Maybe we have our uh, consolidated uh, Welsh tin mining corporation. And, and in this corporation, we have our people. Some of them uh, get food for the tin mine workers and for the religious leaders and for the tribal leaders. Some of them are hunting uh, for meat. 
some of them are farming for meat and we have some people mining tin and then we have craftsmen and artisans that are um, smelting and working that raw rock that tin ore material down into uh, tin ingots uh, and then we'll when we get enough of them together maybe several tons worth We'll load it into uh, one of our nice big boats for transporting goods around, and uh, you know we'll we'll go to the uh, head of security for our uh, tribal confederacy tin mining company, and, and we'll say, hey, we, we've got a new shipment of tin. We need some guards to go down. We're going to transport it uh, into the Aegean. And we need some people that speak um, Minoan and, and Egyptian so that we can trade for uh, goods and golds there, uh, trade our tin. So we have some people that speak different languages in this community, part of our tribal organization. And we have some warriors uh, that have some bronze spears, bronze axes, bro uh, they, they've got bows and arrows. And we have our skilled uh, ocean-going navigators who know the route, know the trade stops. And we load our boat up with our tin, um, with maybe some excess furs, with maybe some uh, unique food that's only come from our area. And uh, we've probably got some requests from our, our nobles, uh, our, our heads of our tin mining tribal confederacy business. You know, when you drop it off, make sure uh, you pick up some of that Egyptian linen I've been hearing about. Or I want some of that fancy Minoan pottery. We need 20 axes for the coming season. You know, that, that type of thing would, would be going, you know, you, you've got your raw materials, uh, you've got people who know foreign languages, you've got some people that are warriors, and you've got some people that are ocean navigators, and we've got uh, basically a, a company that sets out on our little adventure to take our several tons of tin ore, or smelted tin, uh, down the coast of France, we cross the English Channel, we stop at a few communities on the way, maybe they purchase some of our tin, or we trade for some uh, food and some goods, and then we go down the coast a little further to another community, we sell some more tin, and we head over into northern Spain and down around Portugal, and we stop in a few places there, maybe sell some more tin, purchase some other things, say hello to the people there. Hey, John, how you doing? How's the wine? Oh, great, let me pick up some of that stuff. My, you know, my wife will really like that. And you hop back on your boat, head through the Pillars of Hercules into the Mediterranean, and we stop over in Egypt and we pick up some of that uh, cheap Egyptian gold that they have so much of and we trade some of our tin for some linen for some gold and then maybe we'll we'll take that over to Crete and we'll we'll trade there for some of the uh, amazing Minoan pottery and some of the artisans work there they're they're skilled metalworking and then we'll start looping back home. We've got a multi-month journey uh, ahead of us, on, you know, round trip. But when we come back to Wales, uh, we've got some bronze axes. We've got some Egyptian linen. Uh, we've got some uh, Minoan pottery. We've got some uh, bronze that we've traded uh, for our raw tin. And uh, we've got some gold. And then we're going to hand that gold over to our metal workers. And they're going to build that beautifully detailed gold cape for our tribal leader, for our religious leader, whoever that may be. And that, you know, that's the yearly trade of this Welsh tribal community. It's amazing the level of connectedness that exists at this time. 
It's kind of like, uh, uh, you know, the European Union. Only if the European Union included uh, North Africa and the Mideast. It's an amazingly, wonderfully connected world because everybody has to know languages of all these different societies. Uh, everybody has to have a common way to trade. So maybe, maybe Egyptian was the common language of trade at the time, or maybe Assyrian or Akkadian. We don't know that much, but we know that there's definitely trade happening across all these worlds. And the things that enable trade is technology and language. So language has to be uh, common amongst large areas of Europe. It's fascinating to me every time I think about it just how connected uh, the world is and maybe that's not very exciting to you but uh, you know I, I get excited when I think about um, you know that somebody from uh, Crete might have gotten some tin all the way from Wales and they would know enough to be able to talk to each other in a common language. And, hey, how, how's the weather out? How is Mary, your wife? Oh, she's she's great. You know, did, did you did you did you have your son that you were talking? You know, she was pregnant last time I saw you last year. Yeah, we had twins, and they both lived. Wow, that's great. You know, let's have some wine together. Let's celebrate. You know, the, the relationships that had to have existed, these these little things that, uh, you know, you don't just come and drop off your goods and leave. You'd stay there for a few days. You'd have to have uh, some relationships built around common language, um, people that you liked, people you didn't like, and that that connectedness uh, of the world and knowledge that would exist of far off civilizations that nobody in a million years um, would ever be able to 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 kind of travel to and live in and yet trade is happening to these places it's just um, blows my mind every time I think about it I get really excited so this is the world of the Bronze Age there's um, major kingdoms forming in, or not forming, have formed in North Africa, in Egypt, in uh, the Levant area in the Near East, in Anatolia. Trade is happening all amongst North Europe, Africa, and the Near East. Warfare is happening um, all across Europe. Cavalry warfare is a specific concern. Chariots have widespread usage. Uh, archery in like mass archery units is a thing in warfare now. Uh, those slings are still of, of relevant concern. And the amount of goods, the tons, the tonnage of goods moving around is stupefying. And I'm going to talk about that uh, more in the next episode when we dig into uh, Minoan Crete and the how that connects back to the Warhammer 40,000 universe. But as we uh, get there, I just want you to pause and appreciate the scale and scope and connectedness of this world. And that while um, for the vast majority of people in Wales or in Egypt, you know, your little average farmer or slave working a household or field uh, probably has no idea uh, that there exists uh, another person in another language of another skin tone, uh, multiple weeks journey by boat away some people may never have seen a boat in their entire life and yet uh, amongst parts of the civilizations 
are merchants and trade and people that are connecting and bringing language and culture and news of different areas of the world and there would undoubtedly be friendships forming and trade of warfare and people from one civilization would probably you know you get a band of warriors on contract to come and protect your goods on your trip down and uh, maybe they like where they land and geez I'll, I'll uh, the, the Acadian Empire seems like a nice place. Got a little, some nice wine here, some good food. And uh, the ruler, uh, well, he's got a lot of warfare happening, and he's looking for some mercenaries. This would be a good place to make some money, so I'm going to settle down here. you, you got to think that that had to have happened. Somebody from Northern Europe, a group of warriors traveled down protecting a caravan that was traveling from Sweden, stopping into Wales, through Portugal, uh, down through Spain, maybe a stop in North Africa, a uh, stop in Egypt, a uh, stop in Crete, go through the Aegeans, and land on the Akkadian Empire's coast, and stumble across uh, the king who's looking to uh, fight off these Gush invaders that I was talking about earlier. And uh, he'll throw a whole bunch of gold your way. Maybe you settle down after that's done. So it just blows my mind. The realities of how people act today. Uh, again, uh, you know, I always say people are people. So you have to think about what would you do today? That was probably being done two, two to four thousand years ago. Anyways, this has been our uh, first episode on Bronze Age 40K, and I just wanted to take this episode to talk about the world in general, how it's more connected, uh, the relationships of its people, and the generalness of warfare, uh, religion, some of the major city-states that are happening. And in our next episode, we're going to dig into the uh, Minoan people and Bronze Age Aegean and tie that to the world of the Warhammer 40,000 universe. And then the episode after that, we're going to talk about Babylon and the Tower of Babylon during this time and tie that into the world of the Warhammer 40,000 universe. So thanks very much for listening. I hope it was interesting. Uh, and uh, even though we we do, couldn't dig into a lot of details on any one thing, we're going to dig into heavy detail on the Minoans. And, of course, that has, has to touch on uh, Theseus and the Minotaur and tying that to the Warhammer universe. So we're going to get uh, more detailed on that, and we're going to talk about some fascinating and at times grim, dark things about the Minoan civilization in episode two of the series. Thank you very much.